Hey folks, thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and I am very excited to be joined this week by the one and only Richie Schley, freeride mountain bike pioneer, former pro skier, mountain bike hall of fame inductee, and just all around good guy and great storyteller. And well, a bunch of this episode is Richie just reminiscing about the good old days and early days of freeride and telling some very funny and very interesting stories from that time, it's not all rewrite looking because we also spend quite a while talking about just the current state of freeride and how we would like things to progress, including kind of the ways that slope style and rampage have kind of evolved into very carefully manicured courses and just a very different feel from the early days of freeride and Richie's also got some great stuff to say about product development and getting consumers to accept new ideas that are a bit different and scary from what they've become accustomed to and a whole lot more including some stories from his recent bachelor party and just all kinds of really good stuff it's a super fun one I think you're really going to enjoy it but before we get into it I do want to take a minute to chat again about blister plus which, in addition to all of the great benefits of a standard Blister membership, including deals on a lot of really good gear and the ability to email us and get customized gear recommendations on whatever you're thinking about buying or upgrading, also gets you $25,000 of per-incident insurance if you crash and hurt yourself skiing, mountain biking, running, or a whole bunch of other outdoor activities. And last week I was talking about how I'm also excited about it, not just because it's got the potential to save you a ton of money if you have a really serious accident, but because it also just means that if you have a minor one and want to get something checked out out of caution, you can do that and it'll be free. It won't cost you a penny. So along with that, I had been talking about having plunged a tree on my bike a little while ago and thinking about going in to get stuff checked out. And as it turned out, I didn't need to in this case, but... I'm still really glad that that option's available to me since I am a Blister Plus member, and you should be too. So there's a link in the show notes. Check that out. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Richie Schley. Well, Richie, great to sit down and chat. How are you doing, and where are you this morning? I'm doing pretty good. I'm in Laguna Beach, California, in my home for the past... 11 or 12 years, I guess. Yeah, sweet. And kind of just looking to do some chatting about kind of your whole career and some of the early free days free ride stuff and wherever else this takes us. But uh, I guess just for the little behind the scenes moment before we dive into that, we ended up pushing the recording this back a little bit after the realization that recording shortly on the heels of your bachelor party was perhaps not the best recipe for success. So I guess first off, congrats on the pending nuptials and on surviving the the party, I suppose. Any further comment on that or should we leave it there? Oh, you know, it was pretty good, clean, fun. I, <clears throat> we had to go to uh, Vancouver to shoot this um, thing for free ride entertainment for the new movie that's coming out called uh, Nothing's for Free, The History of Free Ride Mountain Biking. And so I suggested to Derek Westerlin, should we have a bachelor party? And he, of course, if anyone that knows Derek, oh, I'm so busy. Oh, thanks for dumping something else on me. So <laughs> it was kind of a little, little impromptu, but it was pretty rad. Uh, all my old friends from Whistler and Vancouver and stuff showed up and uh, we just went for dinner and then <clears throat> kind of landed at the number five orange and, if you know what that is, you kind of get the picture. And if you don't, I'm sure you can Google it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. We could leave that there. They made um, me wear a, a Holstein cow suit with an udder on it, which I was utterly um, disgusted by. But it turned out to be pretty funny and uh, created some extra laughs. So, Is there photographic evidence of this getup? <laughs> there definitely is. I put a little highlight thing on my Instagram. Excellent. Uh, but it's it's good, clean fun. Perfect. Well, like I said up top, um, really just kind of looking to chat and hear some stories kind of about the long arc of your career, because you've done a whole lot of very cool stuff in, well, both the bike and ski worlds, frankly. And so 
I guess we should probably start at the beginning and sort of, I mean, people probably know you as sort of one of the founders of freeride mountain biking as we start to know it today. And um, I think one of the things that's most interesting to me about that whole story and trajectory is sort of how what, you know, became the early days of freeride films and where things started off there really was kind of born out of ski movies and this idea that um, mountain biking was so race oriented in those days, kind of fucking like early to mid nineties at this point. Right. And you guys had a vision for how things could be different. So why don't you just start there and tell us kind of what those first bits were like and where you really got things kicked off? Well, I think to, to start properly, it, it kind of goes back even a little further. And, um, I don't know if it's the the town of Kamloops or the characters that come together, but you know how I would say it all started is, is, you know, I guess as a child, I was pretty adventurous. Like we would get into stupid stuff all the time, which boys do like hiking around places. You're not supposed to getting stuck on cliffs, you know, uh, riding a bike and building little jumps in the street and whatever. So fast forward to Kamloops and, uh, you know, we, one of my buddies, this guy, Glenn Wall, brought this BMX action magazine to school in the sixth or seventh grade. And we were like, what's this? He's like, I found it on the newsstand. And at this point, I had a shock bike, you know, crazy. You go to a rigid BMX bike. But before that, I had a bike that had a shock in the front and a shock in the rear. Like, what kind of uh, foreshadowing is that for the future of, of what we do, you know? So we end up um, kind of figuring out that this BMX thing is something pretty cool happening in California. And we um, kind of set out to see how we can make that happen in Kamloops. And so there was another family that lived in the other side of town and they were kind of already a, like a little step further. And so we kind of got together and there was an existing kind of some dirt piles and not really a track, but we made it work and there was a race. So then my dad was a construction worker and he did all these roads and pipelines and bridges and stuff. So he had access to equipment. So as this little community of two guys builds into four guys, eight guys, 10 guys, we all start to get together and different people find a, someone finds a plot of land and we end up making this BMX track in the middle of nowhere out in the boondocks in Kamloops. And it was compared to the gnarliest BMX track in California ever because it started with this insane steep downhill start and then it, you know on a little BMX bike with 20 inch wheels it was pretty crazy so I think like all this was like somehow there was this pioneering attitude with our group of friends in Kamloops um, you know Derek Westerlin making the free ride movies Tippy Wade all of us um, and it just sort of built from there I mean in those early days I don't even know how I knew this. Oh, I knew I had a, the, the famous snowboarder, Victoria Jalouse was a ski racer at the time. And we went to school together and she told me that she went around to corporate businesses and tried to find sponsorship. So I'm going around to the hotels and the, you know, law, law firms and saying, will you sponsor my BMX team? And they're like, well, what are you looking for? And I'm like, well, I want to make jerseys and it's going to cost a hundred dollars. And, you know, like this guy's giggling and going, of course, you know, <laughs> and sponsors me. So somehow before any of this even happened, I understood the game of like, you got to go out and make stuff happen. Right. And create opportunities and stuff like that. So we're build, building these BMX tracks and with my dad's uh, help and uh, the community's help and kind of creating BMX and Kamloops as a whole. But, you know, going in circles gets kind of dull. So my dad started shuttling us up into Rose Hill, which is a famous, you know, downhill spot in Kamloops. And we're riding our BMX bikes down there. And the guy that owns the bike shop's riding some beach cruiser down there. It's sketchy as hell. And I guess it just all started to build on that. And then once we, we started getting mountain bikes, then, of course, the doors opened up wider. And it just kind of... Yeah, we just kind of were doing dumb shit. And the real motivation, which is crazy, is that, you know, Tippy and I especially were, were big skiers. And there was another group of guys that were a little older than us that were 
big ski guys. And in the summer we're bored and we can't ski the trees and ski powder. But the topography in Kamloops was that you could be riding along a ridge and you just look for an open spot like you're skiing and drop into the trees. And it's sketchy as hell, pine needles, grass, like you get going so fast and you know, two inches of travel in the front or probably in those days, I think it was still full rigid bikes. And you end up cartwheeling down the hill and flipping over and breaking shit on the, your bike. And I mean, breaking stuff was a constant. And so it kind of just started there. And then we got discovered because I, I think people know the story, but Specialized wanted to make this uh, promo video and <clears throat> Greg Stump got the contract and then Christian Bajin got to do the shoot. So we go to Kamloops to shoot this single track stuff with Westerlin. And a funny story about that, which is probably good for this podcast because Tippy doesn't talk about it on his because it's not very pro Tippy. But it was like Derek and I got hired to go do this this shoot and we're supposed to go ride these trails. Well, word gets out in Kamloops and all the BMX guys that are now mountain biking and Tippy. We have this like town meeting about all these guys that want to be in the film. And you're like, dude, this is a job. You don't just get to show up and crash the party. But everybody being a good dude, and we're all old friends. So we kind of pass the bikes around. And next thing you know, we're riding all the steep, crazy stuff. And nobody really set out to do that. But of course, the ski filmers and photographers are like, this is awesome. And, oh, this is way cooler than some single track lame shit that we see all the time. So the story goes that they got the footage uh, specialized. And they were like, this is terrible. We can't use this. And lo and behold free ride mountain biking is born i guess yeah i mean that story's great and the movie you're talking about was pulp traction too so as i recall there was some shenanigans with the specialized legal department and the fact that the title and cover were very aggressively ripping off those from pulp fiction and um but uh yeah i mean i think that note about it kind of looking like a ski movie except on bikes is right on like it's just you guys are dropping down this ridge and just picking lines down it without any real established trail as such and um it was just something very different and you know kind of a real change in what a mountain bike movie could look like and um we'll get to the bikes and kind of state of tech in a minute here but um I am just curious to hear kind of, so after you launched that and the specialized folks were kind of didn't know what to make of it, let's say, what kind of happened from there? Because like specialized themselves maybe were confused by it, but it caught on in a pretty big way and pick the story up there, I suppose. Well, it didn't catch on as quickly as you may think. Like, um, so in those days, I was actively pursuing becoming a pro skier like I had moved to Whistler and I had seen you know I'd seen some Warren Miller movies and I was like oh this is pretty cool but then I saw Stumpy's movies like uh what was it the first one was License or the Blizzard of Oz that I saw and then License to Thrill and License to Thrill was very heavy Whistler Blackcomb mostly Blackcomb right and so I was like that's what I gotta do I think I'm pretty good. There's one cliff in Kamloops at Sun Peaks, Todd Mountain at the time. And I, uh, we would jump off it and we were like, oh yeah, we're like these guys. Okay, clearly we were not like these guys. We were kids, but we were trying to emulate what they were doing. So I moved to Whistler and I was kind of like, yeah, I'm going to make the ski thing happen. And I was, you know, doing my things to try and make it happen, trying to, you know, get into that wave of skiing because we have no alpine and Kamloops and in Whistler, there's a ton of alpine terrain, which is way more severe and bigger cliffs and very steep terrain. So I was kind of going down that path. And then this pulp uh, traction thing just landed in my lap. So I'm like, okay, so free skiing is happening in the US. It's kind of a brand new word and thing in Canada. So I'm pursuing this and I'm like, but this mountain bike thing, this is an opportunity because this sport is so lame it's just racing so if you want to be involved in the community you got to go to races there's no scene there's no like uh 
you know, there were no bike parks. There's no place you can just go session and ride rad stuff. I don't even know if there were dirt jump spots at that time. Probably existed here and there, but I don't know how welcome mountain bikes were <clears throat> to those dirt jump spots, nor were the bikes very conducive for that, right? So I go down to Anaheim to the the inner bike trade show and Tippy Tippy joins me and kind of walk around and pedal my stuff and everyone's like we don't even know what to do with this. Like, what are, what are you doing? What do, what do you want from us? I'm like, well, look parallel to these other sports, snowboarding, skiing, surfing, whatever. And there's a free ride component to it. And we're going to blow the doors off this and make it mountain biking. And no one believed me. Year one, I came home with pretty much nothing. And uh, uh, Mike Edwards was the team manager, former pro racer at Norco. And he, so he lived in Vancouver, Whistler. So he was watching from afar, but he's a businessman. He was quiet and smart. And uh, I get home from Interbike and he calls me and he goes, hey, I, I know what you're up to and I believe in everything you're doing. And I don't know how much success you had, but I have two bikes waiting for you if you don't get anywhere. So I was like, I got nowhere. Can I have those two bikes? So he sends me the bikes and unfortunately, it took time. So to this day, one of the guys at Norco thinks I didn't do a good job for them. But the bottom line was the timing wasn't right. So I wrote these Norcos and they were, I was on a Norco a little bit in Cranked One, but then quickly switched to Rocky Mountain, right? So year two, we go back to Interbike. And now Christian Bijan and uh, Bjorn Inger are there. And we shot this other multi-sport movie uh the Dow of riding it was called and that was all sports and it kind of was the first time that people probably saw free riding because that um that pulp traction movie kind of got buried like it, there was a little mention of it here and there in a bike magazine a few magazines kind of dissing it like oh these bike shop riders crashing down the mountain what what's this you know the beginning of any kind of movement it doesn't look perfect it looks hackish and raw right so um basically with those guys walking around pedaling the movie like pedaling a concept for cranked one it was called wheels of freedom was the original working title and uh then we're walking around pedaling our stuff and now bike magazine has had me on the cover several times already so people are starting to go what is this right and you're seeing these more shocking photos that like bike for people that don't know is the same photo editor as powder magazine. So they were like, this is perfect. Cause we're trying to figure out how to do mountain biking, but it's, it's all about the gear and it's all about racing and it's kind of nerdy. So they were, they hung their hat on that one hard. So I think when everybody came together, then things just really started to move. And then Fox got behind it and Rocky mountain got behind it and Marzocchi got behind it. And the truth is, for a lot of these brands to enter mountain bike racing at that time, it was like million dollar investments, right. To sponsor a team or, you know, have a truck and a mechanic. And what do we want? A few free bikes, a little cash and go out, do our thing. Like we were the fraction of a cost. The movie was a fraction of a cost. The whole situation was a fraction of the cost. And we were more likely to end up in a magazine than if you ended up on a podium at a race, because, it's just like how much race documentation is happening in mountain bike uh, magazines at the time. Right. So it kind of was this perfect storm where the industry was like, Oh, here's an inexpensive way for us to get a lot of exposure not even have to have to buy ads and stuff like that. So then, then the movement really kind of launched. Right. And so kind of what year is it? And what was kind of the moment where it really felt like it was all starting to come together and work after that initial round of rejection at Interbike and all that kind of stuff. When did it feel like it was actually clicking and going somewhere? For some reason, I'm one of these people that's really shitty at the year something happened <laughs> many years ago. No, well, let, let's see. I, I was the Canadian BMX champion in 93. And then I got a mountain bike. So this must have been like 96. Yeah. Okay. And so maybe more relevantly then just what was, was there kind of a catalyzing moment where it felt like, forget the date, but just this is now when it's starting to come together and really happen? Or mm -hmm. did it kind of feel like more of a slow build than that rather than a switch flipping? 
No, there was a there was a moment for sure because like what happened was that <clears throat> that second trip to Eurobike. I'm living in Whistler and I've uh, I've quit my job. I didn't even really have a job, but I, I construction worked and worked in the bush running a chainsaw and all these shit summer jobs and the unemployment situation, uh, unemployment insurance situation in Canada was quite uh, beneficial for people that did seasonal work. So at this point, I hadn't even worked that much because in the summer I was trying to focus. I'm like, I got to put everything into this, you know, this bike and ski thing to see if it happens. So at this point, I think my first paid sponsor was um, Smith Optics. And they were paying me 500 bucks a month. So that was covering my rent for my room in Whistler. And then I had these photo incentives from Power Bar and Lifelink and Crokies, the thing that holds your sunglasses on. They had a good photo incentive program. Lifelink was a backcountry avalanche gear. <clears throat> so I'm getting pictures in magazines, local magazines, uh, national magazines, you know, all over the world. And you get these photo incentives. So I'm literally scraping together cash to live off. And... Um, the phone would ring and I was taught to never say no to work. So someone would want to hire me to come to a construction site. And I was like, hated every second of it, but I was a hard worker. So I would take the job. And then the guy that hired me would be like, you don't want to be here, do you? And I'm like, no. So then I quit and go ride my bike and whatever. So it was all of that year, which I think would have been either 96, 97, where I was like, okay, I'm tired of being broke. I think I should move to the city and go to school or try to find a job that pays properly. And, you know, some of the photographers, Paul Morrison and Scott Markowitz, they were like, I think you're close. Just, you know, keep on trucking. You know, at this point in my life, I've probably made like, I don't know, best year ever, like 30,000 a year or something. So all of a sudden, the replies, the phones, it was more phone than email back then. A little bit of email, the phone starts ringing and I get a, a ski deal and I get a ski clothing deal and I get a bike deal and I get a Fox clothing deal. And, you know, all these deals start to come together and I'm like, oh my God, it's happening. So the fall of 96 or 97 was this aha moment where I was like, I never thought I'd make this money in my life. And I'm probably making like 60,000 a year all of a sudden overnight to do exactly what I want to be doing instead of running a chainsaw or pounding nails, you know? So that was kind of the moment. And it, it came together for Wade Simmons. It came together for Tippy, And it just, you know, then that, that whole cranked thing happened and cranked one and yeah, it just kind of fell into place. And then, People could see the value because you could go to to these companies and go, okay, I want this much money. And they're like, well, what do you do? And you're like, well, show me your top racer. Was he featured in 25 or 30 magazines last year on the cover, double page spreads, other companies ads, like this has got a lot of value. And they were like, yep, we can see it. Boom. And, and I think it was such an exciting moment and it was something new and fresh in the sport that we were we were, we could clearly track that we were selling products, you know? Yeah. And do you think there was anything that kind of clicked with the brand people that sort of made them see that value and realize that it was worth pursuing or beyond just kind of you guys getting enough momentum behind what you were doing to be able to demonstrate that you were, you know, getting photos and magazines and doing that stuff? Or was there more to it than that? Well, I think any brand that's ultimately about selling product <clears throat> and when they could see so much buzz going on, you know, we we would go to Eurobike, which is the biggest trade show in the world. And it would be like Danny McCaskill or Fabio Whitmer today. There was, we would sign like thousands of autographs over the stretch of three days. And we're like, this is insane, you know? And so, and then obviously more people were desiring these type of products, you know, Downhill racing was uh, had Sean Palmer at the time, so he was pushing on that side to change the style and the the style of clothing. The bikes were evolving because they had big needs, we had big needs, and we're breaking shit every time we go out. So there was so much evolution happening. Like people think you see evolution now, but if you can imagine starting with a rigid bike or maybe more fairly a, a front suspension bike 
and just how quickly that five year kind of span changed so much stuff like durability uh angles shorter stems all these brakes you know wheels were huge we'd break wheels i mean who tacos a wheel now you you taco a wheel once a week in those days you know because we're crashing more too we weren't as precise so i think everybody could just see well this is uh, pushing products forward we're selling tons of stuff and if there's so much excitement about these guys clearly they're influencing sales so some it, it was interesting the companies that didn't get on board early and the ones that did and the ones that like you know marzocchi they didn't have the money to go into racing so they uh put their chips in our corner and they became huge right uh rock shocks who is huge in free riding they were very late to the game you know um Kona, who's right in the heart of it, I was always disappointed that they didn't jump into free riding earlier because they lived the shore and were all part of this. And Rocky Mountain, who appeared to be a little more conservative company, they were all in as, as well because I think they they couldn't afford to buy a big race team. So they would have a modest race team. And then when those riders, it's still happening today, Jesse Melamade, when those riders get to a certain level, they let them go. And it's like, okay, crazy. So we were kind of a value package for for uh, the lack of having a World Cup team, you know? Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And I guess since you kind of touched on it there, this might as well be a good time as any to kind of talk about the bikes of that era a little bit. I mean, you look at, say, Cranked One or something, and you guys are all riding hardtails with 120 millimeter stems and, they're you know, just, you know, completely unrecognizable compared to what we're riding today, basically. And... I mean, obviously, you know, evolution takes a little bit and bikes started changing pretty quickly and have continued to do so. But what was it kind of like just having all of these bikes that were built to be, you know, cross-country race bikes, essentially, and starting to do your thing on them? And obviously, like I said, you're breaking everything, of course, but you're then going back to the companies and being like, well, this isn't working for what we're doing. And kind of how did you, how did those conversations go and what was it? like trying to drive product oriented stuff forward in that era? Well, fortunately, I think, um, especially with Rocky mountain and, uh, Marsoki, they were very on board. Like, cause you, you gotta remember too, that those companies, Marzoki was a little different, but at that time, Bryson Martin was coming to BC a lot. So Regardless, there's the North Shore and there's some crazy stuff going on there. So they're seeing stuff breaking everywhere too, right? And so if you were involved in that scene before free riding even got noticed. People were already that were in Vancouver brands were aware that these people are putting way higher demands on product. So all of the guys we worked with were definitely already looking down that road. And when you talk to more US-based companies, they didn't really get it because they weren't seeing the same problems. So in all honesty, it was pretty easy, but it was pretty humorous too. Like, I mean, I remember Marshall Kent from Rocky gives me this carbon fiber, uh, I think, what was it called? It was like the pipeline, which was a unified rear triangle, which was a great pedaling design, but it was basically useless for descending. It was kind of like a hard tail, but we did a lot on those bikes. And so he gives me this carbon version. He's like, this is going to break, but it's going to break in the rear end. So don't worry about it. And so, you know, I go riding in Squamish, do some shuttles on the 19th hole and sure enough, the main pivot breaks out of the bike and you're like, okay. So we had a good wave going. Like everybody was pretty open to listening. And actually the, maybe the toughest part of that time was wave was a little more um, dialed technically, but Tippy and I, didn't know anything technical. I could barely fix my bike. So I'm like, this broke, or I don't know why this weird, feels weird, but it feels weird. So I didn't even know the language and how to properly communicate with the engineers, right? But it was it was pretty fast moving. Like I remember prior to the full suspensions and stuff, I, I crashed and bent my handlebars on my specialized stump jumper because they gave us a bike for doing that film. <clears throat> but uh, I go into the shop and a pair of, you know, straight aluminum handlebars is like 150 bucks and you're like these things suck anyway they're not putting me in the right position and this guy uh what's his name he had the grinders bike shop in Whistler 
And um, he was like, I got these kind of cruiser bars in there, like a riser bar with a better sweep and everything. And they're like 30 bucks. I'm like, are they strong? He's like, I don't know. Try them out. So I buy the $30 bars and all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, I got a shorter stem on and I got these riser bars. And I'm like, this is sick. This is a way better position for all this stuff I want to do. Right. So there was just lots of little, there was so many people that had the vision. And when it all came together, everybody was like, oh, wow, this is way better. But it, it took a lot of time with a lot of brands to convince them that this was better and, oh, it doesn't climb very well. Oh, it's too heavy. I mean, Wade and I were talking about it the other day. We're still having, a, like, I got this really light e-bike from Rottweil, and he's got the heavier um, Rocky Mountain. And we're just like, he's like, who gives a shit about weight? And I'm like, weight is always going to be a story in this business. Like, there's just no question. So that's the hardest thing we've battled. And, and I think some of the things that are weird that still exist in our sport are like, we're so down the gravity path, but we still have these reminiscences of road biking where it all came from. And you're like, why do we have Presta valves instead of Schrader? This is so crazy that we can't break free from this stronghold of how we started 35 years ago or whatever, however old mountain biking is, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, I guess to run with that example, it's sort of the thing where it's just, there's kind of momentum behind something and anyone who tries to change it, it's going to be a pain in the ass to make that transition. And so it's just, you know, even if the end result might be better, it's like, here, here's a, here's, this is the best synopsis I can give to the bike industry. Every single new product you're cheating. Like the first time I showed up with a suspension fork, people were like, oh, cheating. Like, cheating. What am I cheating? I'm making it better and easier. Then it's full suspension. Cheating. Disc brakes. Cheating. The dropper post. Cheating. You know, big wheels. Cheating. And you're like, why, why are we such an industry that is so... Um, engineering focused so progress progression in engineering and every new product gets shit on until everybody goes how did we do this before and you're like how are we not more open-minded to move there quicker was always my question yep and we just had the exact same conversation about this on our gear 30 podcast about powder skis like you know you in the oh, days yeah. of skinny straight skis you get start people making wider rockered stuff and it's like oh you're cheating skiing like you're making powder skiing easy and like you're making it way better and you know it's it's 100 the same thing yeah that's funny that you say that i remember uh i think it was a matchstick ski movie uh what was it called the first one i was in and i met i was i was on the shoot and whistler with kent kreitler and he had I think the first K2 fat skis, I can't even remember what they were. Maybe they were called the pontoons already. I'm not sure. Those no, came a they were later, but yeah, it was the, the, whatever the first ones yeah. were and they were shorter. I, and he was, you know, and I was on these two Oh three Kessley uh, GS skis that were like, you know, I don't know, four inches under the waist, three and a half. And I was already had this thinking I was making these huge GS turns but you had to be so balanced and pressure sensitive. And it was kind of like, God, this could be easier. So I was watching him. But prior to that, I had been at uh, Mike Wigley's, not Mike Wigley's, CMH heli skiing for, I used to do these Japanese fashion shoots. That's something humorous. If you saw the photos one day, I'll release them. They're, they're, uh, they're pretty comical fur collars and white stretch pants. And yeah, it was insane. But so one day we thought, they're like, why don't you try these fat skis? And they were, for the time, very fat, not as fat as what we ski on now. And the bindings were even mounted inward because they were so fat. They weren't that fat. And I skied around on it. It was spring. There's probably like, you know, four inches of powder, not too much, you know, whatever that is in centimeters. I'm American-ish now. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, there's something here. Like, you're just floating but I, I was like, okay, well, first of all, I'd get ridiculed because they're like 180s. And if I was on anything less than the 200, I'd probably get ridiculed by my friends. Although I'm a small guy, I never, ever should have been on 200 plus centimeter skis. 
And I was like, also, how would I access them? But had I been able to, I should have jumped on that early because, I mean, look at what Shane McConkie did. He was a pioneer because he didn't give a shit what anybody said. He just went for it. But I, I had a taste of it very early and I was like, oh my God, this is way easier. Like what you could do would be insane. So yeah, it's, it's just funny that, you know, in, in, in a, such a fast moving society, there's just so many critics. Like I was at one of my sponsors yesterday and this new bike I have has an integrated seat post and it's a little, it's a 34 millimeter diameter. And one of the dudes was like, the sales manager was like, that looks ugly. I'm like, it looks awesome. And he's like, it's so fat. And I'm like, every time something new comes out, it doesn't fit your visual thing. It's like, why are people so fucked? Like, just accept it. It's new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's not to say that everything new is better, but there's just this visceral reaction to it's different and therefore must be bad and we have to get rid of it and little open-mindedness wouldn't hurt sometimes and i guess well while we're on skiing i mean be curious to hear a little bit about what it was like kind of trying to bounce back and forth between that world and mountain biking because you were doing both professionally kind of concurrently for a good long while there um was there really ever a point where it felt like you were being pushed by sponsors or whoever else to really just buckle down and focus on one thing or was it fairly easy to toggle seasonally a bit or how did that all go well i think in the beginning it was kind of like if you were a pro free skier and a pro mountain biker there wasn't a ton of competition so you were kind of like laying the fabric yourself so it wasn't like there were these uh you know obviously you had to be charging and you had to keep progressing but it wasn't like um there wasn't so many guys to compare to so it was pretty easy the first few years but then it became pretty apparent that mountain bikers were going south to train in the in the winter to become better dirt jumpers because that was a part of it and skiers were going to the southern hemisphere to get more time on skis and all the while this was happening it was all about tricks and i was an early trick guy in in more mountain biking than skiing because nobody could get in the air and do shit like a tabletop was like the godsend and I could do it like out of anything right the schlebel top is I like to get criticized for but um anyway so the big one was in the skiing I just tried to do flips and spins and I just kept getting hurt so I was like this isn't what my feeling of skiing is like going out you know when snowmobiles came in you're going out on the snowmobile and you're building a booter and you're barely skiing and you're spending all this money. Well, prior to that, all my budget went to going heli skiing. I'm like, well, this is fucking awesome. I'm heli skiing. I don't have to own anything. I don't have to learn how to use it. And I don't have to go build a kicker and sit in one spot and hit a jump. I want to shred the mountains, right? So that was kind of the first push of like, oh, I don't know if I can do both because everybody else was progressing so much quicker because they were doing it year round. And the, the, the whole skiing backwards and doing all these spinning, flipping tr tricks wasn't why I wanted to ski. I wanted to shred lines. So, and then people didn't want to pay me anymore because they didn't want to do those things. So that was kind of the writing on the wall. <laughs> and I was making substantially more money at this point to ride. So I figured, well, <clears throat> rather than, you know, try to milk the ski thing, I might as well um, just put all my eggs in the mountain bike basket. And Looking back, a few people in the ski industry have told me, you never should have left the industry, but it was easy to because nobody wanted to support me, right? And you know what the most fucked up thing is? I, I used to try to convince Jiro or Smith to do these cross ads, like do a summer winter ad, like here's an athlete that does both. But because it was two guys sitting in two different chairs, they just could not wrap their head around it. And I'm like... How how hard is this? You just get together and in the summer, like how many people you think ski that mountain bike and mountain bike that ski? Uh, and like, I, I can't imagine, how, or maybe you can, how many marketing people have no creativity? How did you become a marketing person? It's so crazy. So yeah, that still blows me away to today. 
So then years later, you know, and Caroline Chasson is probably the greatest mountain biker, one of the greatest mountain bikers of all time, uh, most titles and whatever. I saw a, an ad in a French magazine. It's her ripping downhill in the summer and her ripping on skis in the winter because people that don't know, she's a sick skier. And I was like, that's what I've been trying to get to happen for the last 10 years. <laughs> so anyway, back to your question, I guess no one wanted to pay me to ski anymore. The money was coming from mountain biking. So, and I thought, okay, I need to start becoming more of a dirt jumper because that's becoming an important part of it. Once again, not exactly what I loved. It was fun, but I loved riding, not going to a spot and going in circles back to the BMX day. Right. So it's funny because I get criticized as this, uh, uh, I'm the professional, but it, the essence of it all is I've stayed very true to what I love to do. And I don't know why I'm criticized for that. Cause that's kind of bullshit, <laughs> but yeah. So that's kind of the, the progression of sport forced me out of different categories a little bit, because I don't really care about going to a foam pit and learning tricks. I want to ride or I want to ski. So that's always been maybe misunderstood. Yeah. I think that, makes a lot of sense and just trying to sort of stay true to what you wanted to do. And, um, you know, it's pretty cool career to have, but it's still a job. You're still working at it and trying to do what you can to keep it fun and really be what you actually want to be doing makes very good sense, of course. So we touched on this a little earlier too, but I would be curious to hear some more about, you know, you talked about companies actually being pretty receptive to trying to update the gear they were making to better suit what you guys were doing, but also sort of mentioned that you didn't necessarily have the clearest picture of the direction to take things and what would actually be useful necessarily. And so in those days, I mean, did you have any kind of even fuzzy vision in your head of where bikes were going to actually end up, you know, looking at something more modern or was it just like, oh, make it not break, but kind of how did you think about where you wanted to see bikes head in those days when you were just getting things going and trying to figure out what it was that you really needed out of a bike? You know, to be honest, I wasn't such a technical guy then. I, <clears throat> I've learned and become much more um, interested now. So I, I would say on the on the equipment side, I what I was more concerned about was durability because we, you know, it's dangerous when you break stuff. Right. So that was a, a thing. And then once Rocky mountain came out with like the, well, I think Santa Cruz came out with the bullet and then Rocky mountain followed up with the RM six while they started with the RM nine, then it, it started to open my eyes to like, Oh, I should pay attention to this because they, some of the brands were actually more forward thinking than we were. We just didn't want to break shit. Right. So, but in the, on the soft goods side, I was always way more interested. Like, I think Fox should somehow, Fox Clothing should celebrate the clothing line they had for mountain biking when I went there was exactly what people are doing now. Like these casual looking riding pants and they were a little too baggy at the bottom. So I had to convince them to put snaps to pinch the leg in so you didn't catch them and downhill pants and like that were mimicking moto but they weren't moto pants and there were so there were so many things in that line and then they went away from it because they were too early and i think um us as riders with the baggy clothes and stuff and the brands we we kind of were too far ahead of the consumer at sometimes and this it took the consumers a long time to catch up right um so that was maybe more the problem is they would produce stuff, bring it to market and they're like, didn't sell. And you're like, fuck. But then now all that shit is out there and it's selling like helmets, you know, uh, Jiro had the switchblade. It was a great concept. Didn't work very well. Everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people are loving these convertible helmets. Now, why did it take 15 years for somebody to realize there's a market for this? It's just, it's but I think that comes back to change and no one wants to see change. So they gotta, there's gotta be all these early adopters have to, you know, really believe in it and stay with it to get their community behind it, to make the demand for the product, to make it happen. 
Cause I don't know how many times I convinced a brand to do something and didn't sell well. And they look at me and go like, and now you move down the road and that is now selling well. And you're like, I was just too early. Even color schemes, you know, like I would go like, do these colors. And it's like, doesn't sell five years later. There's the color scheme. You know, it's like, fuck. How much do you sort of see that as a shortcoming of how those things were marketed and sort of sold to consumers versus just kind of the thought that nothing gets adopted instantaneously and it just takes time for something to gain enough momentum and acceptance to really start to sell if it's really categorically very different than what preceded it? Well, maybe part of the problem was we were working with small brands. Like if you were, if I was feeding these ideas to specialized, they blanket the market. So maybe it would have got a more of a critical mass movement. So I think that might have a big factor in it. You know, you're dealing with a little Rocky mountain or a little Marzocchi or, you know, Fox was just kind of reacting because it was so new to them, but they, I think they had good designers and they were coming up with good stuff. I think that was just way too early. So I think it was probably just the fact that we were pretty niche. The brands were niche. Our scene was niche. And now it's like, you know, like it still saddens me. You go to the Whistler bike park and you see black tight riding pants and black t-shirts and you're like, okay, so all of a sudden you now have this new progressive scene, but everyone's exactly the same. Like no one, no one stands out. No one takes a chance. So I guess it is a bit of a, even if you're in a fringe part of a a movement, it's still a herd mentality and very few people want to be standouts and you know like years ago this is this is hilarious actually so probably around the second or third crankworks probably the second i'm like i'm bringing the fanny pack back (laughs) so i'm wearing a fanny pack around the whistler bike park because you need tools you need uh you need a pump, you need some shit, you need a tube, you know, there was no tubeless then, although we tried like hell, but no one would accept it once again. And I gave up. Now, hip packs are huge in mountain biking. (laughs) So it's like, they're great. Especially if you have a subtle small one, the big ones are kind of bulky, they bounce around, they're not very comfortable. But that's more of a, uh, you know, epic thing. But yeah, there's just, I think it's just like, most people are followers and not leaders, right? No, it's tough. And I mean, bringing up Crankworks, I think, is a good kind of segue into subsequent chapter because we, we were talking about some of the earlier days where you're just kind of riding down gravel pits and cam loops and whatever. And then you get into this development of dirt jumping and people doing tricks. And all of a sudden you have the rise of slope style and just free ride mountain biking looking very different. And then obviously you've got rampage kind of kicking off approximately concurrently with that. But, um, in the more, especially in those early days, kind of more of the raw big mountain style of things. But, um, I mean, I guess, tell us a bit about what you were doing riding wise those days and what you were most into doing riding wise and kind of what it felt like being around the scene and driving it at that time when what, free ride mountain biking looked like was changing so dramatically and quickly. Well, I mean, obviously anybody that knows me knows I, I, I claim a lot of things about the Whistler bike park, <laughs> but the, the really the evolution there was pretty funny. This, um, <clears throat> this guy, um, what was his name? Eric White. He kind of started the Whistler bike park and with, you know, with Whistler's support, but it just, you know, the, the the people, the community didn't really understand the concept of riding up a chairlift and riding down because, you know, mountain biking was like exercise and getting your deal. And so Crabapple was a was a trail and it was a just a winding trail down an open ski run. So what did all the daredevils do? They just went straight. So it wasn't working. Right. So then, you know, we start beeline got built. We started to build these other things. And and the guys, I was the only pro mountain biker living in Whistler. So the guys that were running the bike park, uh, this guy, Jason Rowe knew me from skiing. And so he would ask me like, what do we need to do to make this thing cool? 
And I was like, well, there's no jumps and this sport needs jumps. Everybody in every sport wants jumps. So beeline was already there. And then that's when kind of, I said, build jumps everywhere was my claim. So I did not design a line, but I definitely pushed them that the only way this is going to work is if there's jumps, because the community here rides all this steep, rooty shit and down rocks and there's no flow at all. I mean, those trails now there's flow, but it's just the most rugged, janky shit terrain, but you still enjoy it because there's challenges and it's physically demanding and all this stuff. So then they build a line. Crab Apple puts jumps on it. Oh, guess what? No one rides around the jumps because they're more fun to hit than just going straight down the run, right? <clears throat> and then, you know, so it's already happening, but people are still not really coming to the bike park in the droves that we hoped. So then I brought the idea to them, well, why don't we make a contest at the bottom of the mountain that shows all the features that are up on the mountain? And then it might get some thought provoked provoking going on so that people want to go up there and check it out because as a whole the local community was like we, we can pedal up we're not going to pay to go up the lift so i created the first slope style and you know what, what you saw then was like some guys were on hardtails some guys were on downhill bikes like it really was ladder bridges and drops and some weird shit because that was still part of the north shore like this a teeter-totter or tower totter i don't know if you remember that yeah yeah that was ridiculous. Like the guys were like, you built it. You're going to hit it. I'm like, I'm not going to hit it. <laughs> so I never did hit that thing. It was the stupidest thing ever, but guys loved it. It was cool. Um, so it was, it was a really kind of sweet time because you could think anything up and they would say, yeah, go for it. And I got to be honest. I told all the guys, the slope style guys, be careful. Cause this is going to become like freestyle motocross. If we keep, homogenizing it and it's going to become stale so what do we look at now we have incredible athleticism but there's no line choices there's no surprise you know okay so uh emilio johansson does something variation that no one's ever seen the make the, the average guy can't even identify what he just did it's so spectacular but the element of surprise is just gone you know, and, and that's, it, it hurts me a little bit because I'm like, that's what keeps the rampage exciting because it's, it's, there's more creativity in the actual line choice. And I've said for years, Crankworks needs to be more of an open um, blanket. So there's options for line choice. And I think we landed exactly where I predicted freestyle motocross is going to go. It's so predictable you know, oh, the the guy's not going to do his last run because the guy before him did one more bar spin than he did. That's kind of dry, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I, what I used to do when I built those courses is the course would be set. There's a bunch of line choices. And then I had these wooden booters and I would go up there with a few guys and go, where can we put these that maybe somebody will hit this and jump to this landing that's already there and just pepper in a bunch of crap that some of it never got hit. Some of it blew people's minds, you know, when guys jump over the whole box and stuff. And that kept this like moment of like, didn't believe it could ever happen. Right. So it was, it was really cool because we could build anything. We could, the, the bike park was totally behind it, supported everything. And I guess like everything, it grows, it gets more regulated. It's more dangerous. There's more people. So you gotta, <clears throat> you gotta kind of water down everything a little bit, but it was such a sick time because products, trails, stunts, events. You could come up with any idea and these the people would be like, these guys walk on water, so let's try it. <laughs> Didn't always work out. But. Sure. Anything from those early Crankworks courses that you felt was particularly successful kind of beyond just the idea of having line choice and the ability to make it more different and varied and creative than the sort of single run kind of layout that you get now or anything that stands out there? Yeah, I, I think just having like having the course builder build some ominous little thing that you don't tell anybody about. Like, for example, a few years ago, you know, you don't see this anymore. So a few years ago, there was the cabin at the bottom of the course. And I was walking around up there, looking at the course, checking it out. And Seminac was up there. 
and you would jump up on the cabin and then you would jump off the cabin. It was the only line. And I see Brandon standing there and I go, are you looking at what I'm looking at? And he wanted to hit the jump and jump beside the cabin the whole length and, and hit the landing. And that would have been one of those things like what uh, Limon did this year. And, but he, we both agreed that it didn't line up, but I was like, if the top guy or one of the top guys is looking for this, then clearly it's missing. And so just anything from those days that was something where you could transfer from something to something that the, the main pack of the competitors didn't see, but the standout guy saw. So just any of those moments where somebody pieced together something that wasn't obvious, like the first time Timo jumped over the whole box, like it was awesome. I didn't even think of it. I was like, well, that's ridiculous, but he broke both of his ankles, but it was still <laughs> rad. <laughs> still placed relatively well, as I recall, just because it was so crazy that he, even though he blew up, it uh, scored pretty well. Yeah. The, the other thing that drives me nuts, and it's the same in the rampage, is like, how did we end up that this is like figure skating? You know, you come down the mountain. Like I remember a few years back, probably five or six years ago, Semenek does the sickest, the sickest run you've ever seen in slope style. And he crashes on the last jump and he ends up seventh. And you're like, okay. So he took all the chances at the top and then he still goes, he could have just done a straight air off the bottom and he would have won. So he does a 360. I think he ended up seventh. And you're like, how do you get knocked back to seven? Like it was the sickest slope style run ever done. Top three still for sure. And we see it at the rampage every year. A guy puts a foot down like Andreo Lacanvigi is the best example. The guy rides so loose and wild. Maybe he drops a foot and you're like, oh, it wasn't clean. It's like, when did this become figure skating? It's like, was it the most exciting thing you saw? And so I think this, this whole culture of it being perfect doesn't fit the sport very well you can do a downhill race and your chain breaks out of the gate and you still win or whatever you you could you could crash get offline get back in line and still win why does it have to be this precision perfect looking thing it's a loose wild sport it drives me absolutely nuts i am right there with you on that one i and it's a big part of why downhill racing has just captured my interest a lot better in recent years for exactly what you just said that i don't really want my mountain biking to look absolutely flawless and kind of just it should be a little loose that's what's cool about it and um i mean i think rampage is a good kind of case study though in sort of the push and pull there in that like you know in the early days when you were competing it was honestly kind of very little even trail building happening you kind of just go kick a couple rocks out of the way or whatever and get after it and you know the more modernized building of lines has i think definitely made it a lot safer which you know that's that's certainly worth something but um it there's something that's lost with that too and I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on how if you were in charge and just could hand down an edict, what you would want to go try to change to walk that line a little differently? Well, the first thing is in the judging. I just don't think it should be. If you if you put a foot down or something like that, it shouldn't really matter too much. It should be about the impression and the the, the run you did and all that. <clears throat> but I had a lot of talks with a lot of the riders this year about the whole thing. And I, I think it's sort of like, okay, if we want to get back a little bit to it was what it was. Um, and, you know, make it a little more free riding and a little less slope style. There should be like, like Cam Zink brought up an awesome point. He's like, we have five venues right now. So why can't we just go back to those venues and you get one day to clean it up and then maybe you draw your run. You don't get to pick your own run. Cause I think what's now happening is if you look at everybody's runs, you know, 
the guy builds the run that suits him. And, and like a guy like T-Mac, he never seems to place very well. And is it because the lines he builds? What, what if he was forced to ride somebody else's line? Would he excel or would it show that he's limited? I don't know. But I think to go back to those venues that already have some super sick stuff on them, and then we don't, because then we don't get into the situation where you got to go five feet higher, five feet higher. That's all super cool and exciting. But is it really necessary when we have all this built out? You know, I think that like, and, and the problem is there's no leader there in that group. So I talked to Red Bull about it. Well, what am I going to jump in? And all these guys are going to be like this old guy that hasn't been involved for years is now dictating what we do. So I would be happy to do it. I don't want to spend a ton of time unless I'm getting something out of it, you know, let alone resistance. Um, but I think that they need to rethink it. It, it is like Andrea told me this year, he goes, this is a 20 plus year old concept. We need to evolve. But I think that the sad part is, is it's those guys that need to evolve it. Cause what you're going to let Red Bull evolve it or the organizers like, no, you need to get together and evolve it yourself. Yeah. You know? Right. The incentive's not really there on Red Bull's end to shake it up. Yeah. They have a successful property and you know why rock the boat so to speak but if the top guys are kind of over it that's a problem right right totally so i think that those guys would do themselves a huge favor to band together and figure out how they would like to see this move forward but i think reusing the old venues would be a great thing um because uh yeah it's just it's all laid out there and do we just like look at look at the effort these guys go out there for 10 days and they build and arguably they do one run and then there's wind and there's this and there's that so they got to take control of it and make it a little more their thing instead of like letting it be dictated to them how it is and i guess they did that with fest series but fest series is a very different thing it's not the essence of free riding it's a it's a jump thing it's super badass but it's 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 totally different yeah yeah, that thing about the wind hold too. I don't I forget who floated this, but I saw someone suggesting that maybe the way to do it's just to split the runs into two days because it feels like so many times we get up there, everyone gets their first run, and then early afternoon wind picks up, and now we're just hanging out, and it kind of all falls apart. I don't know what the answer is there, but it's tough. That's the problem. The riders have given up complete control, and so if Red Bull does another day. I can tell you it's, what is it? Is it 100, 200, 500,000 more to do that? So <clears throat> that's the thing where it's like, they have to say what they want. Like one of the concepts is, it's like a surf contest. You go to each, each venue and you have a day at each venue and you knock the numbers down to come down to the final two, at whatever, um, you know, Cam had a great idea. You go to each venue and every rider rides the previous year winning lines. Oh, be kind of cool. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. Yeah. But I ran it by Red Bull and they're like, do you know how logistically hard it would be? And it's like, well, because we're used to doing it this way. If it's not a live broadcast and it's a shot show and it's produced as a television show instead of a live broadcast, that changes the whole scope of things. But it's up to the riders to dictate what they want. Right. That's really so, interesting as just a thought. But yeah, certainly the broader point that yeah. the riders need to kind of band together and take some agency for what they want the event to be. And it's not going to change otherwise, I think, is clearly right. Yeah. yeah. Well, keep moving on a little bit, I guess. Just be curious to hear a bit more about what you're up to these days. Obviously, we got the living in Laguna thing. Been down there for a while now. What else is going on in your world? <laughs> Uh, well, getting married. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still trying to keep the mountain bike dream alive. And I'm trying to, you know, with all of my experience and all these different things I've, you know, had my fingers in, I'm just trying to find uh, brands to work with that believe that I have something to offer. And I guess it's hard to find because it's, you know, you're, pro you're proposing something that isn't uh, a job description. Like, I don't know that I want to be the marketing guy. <clears throat> I don't know to be the PR guy. I don't know that I want to be the PR manager or the product manager. But I think I can offer a lot of help in all these categories. 
but finding those partners is a lot harder than you would think. <laughs> so I'm trying to work on that. Um, you know, I got a property here that has some rental components. I do that. I surf, stand up paddle surf quite a bit, but it's been the shittiest winter ever. And believe it or not, this year I did a lot of skiing. I went to Alaska for uh, a week with some very generous friends. And that was uh, kind of ptexonthegroundcom but a lot of shredding steep fun stuff so i still love to ski but i hate skiing at ski resorts because i can't deal with lift lines and waiting and watching other people get it while you're like wishing you could get it so just kind of living a free ride life still but it's getting harder because you know you got to figure out how to feed yourself and house yourself right yeah that's a big one but hey i mean this has been a blast and I'm sure we could keep going for a long time, but uh, we could <laughs> should probably let you get back to it at some point here. So thanks for the chat and been a lot of fun. Really appreciate it, Richie. Cool, man. Thank you. It's been fun too. I, I love doing this stuff. All right. That's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas. And as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review to help keep the show going and growing. And of course, I'd like to say thanks to Richie for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.